How do we learn to anchor ourselves in the midst of a storm? Where do we find trust when we're surrounded by uncertainty? If you listen to this show, you know that I'm trying to reframe how we think about seasons of unknowing. These times of uncertainty are difficult. They always have been. But here's the secret. We've never known what was going to happen next. We've never had a clue about what was coming around the corner. So what if we could begin to see unknowing not as a problem, but as a portal to possibility? We have to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. I've been saying that for almost a year now on the show. But learning how to navigate when you can't see the map in front of you, or maybe you've burned all the maps that were in front of you, requires the development of an inner compass. A way of anchoring yourself through the trust that you have in your own body and heart's ability to lead and guide you to the freedom of creative possibility. Learning how to navigate uncertainty, exploring how we can embrace trusting ourselves a bit more are the themes found in Bird Talker's latest album. Danny Green and her husband founded the band during a time of spiritual exploration in their own lives. As it turns out, they were deeply inspired by Richard Rohr's writing, and thus the name Bird Talker came from their love of his work and St. Francis. In 2018, they released their first debut full-length album, One, to huge success. It was a total whirlwind. And somewhere during that wild, chaotic time is when I met Danny, today's guest. Besides being a musician, Danny has her own podcast called Weather Women, which sits at the intersection of spirituality, psychology, and creativity, and focuses around navigating what it means to live a holistic, creative life. Yeah, you could say that Danny and I have a couple things in common, which is why I was dying to get her on the show, and I'm so excited that she was able to join me. So let's dive right in to season two, episode five of Unknowing. So Danny, it's so great to see your face. I can't even remember the last time that we hung out. I think it, I mean, it was pre-COVID, right? Definitely pre-COVID in Nashville, uh, baby shower. I think it was a very ornate and, you know, wild, wildly over the top baby shower that we were hanging out at. It was. And I think that was the first time that we ever hung out, really. I think that was the first time I was meeting you in person because I had heard a lot about you from Joy and we just fell into like a long, deep, delicious conversation That's and right. have just been friends ever since. That's right. So wild and beautiful. So I usually begin by asking a question about the first map that you were given growing up. And the reason I like to talk about this is because when we remember that we have journeyed off the edges of maps, I think it gives us confidence and courage to mm -hmm. keep going in whatever unknowing we are currently. So what was the first map that you were given, the terrain or the markers that helped you make sense of your reality, whether it be cultural or religious or artistically? Um, share a little bit about the map that you were given. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, what comes up is that I had maybe two kind of conflicting ones that I didn't realize at the time, but have made sense of since then. Both of my parents are from upstate New York and moved my family down to Nashville before I was born. So I grew up as a Southerner inside of a Northern family. And we were all growing up in the South. And my parents started going to church, taking us to several different churches. I didn't grow up with one specific religion, but kind of a sampler platter is what I call it. So I guess on the one hand, you know, my family was kind of assimilating into the South and we were going to like Southern Baptist churches and things like that. And so I remember kind of just picking up what you can as a kid of what God is and the story that's sort of told in those churches, which was not the most life-affirming. I remember feeling tension and fear in the space of church and Everyone else seemed to be really into it and all, you know, strung out on Jesus, in love with Jesus. And and I didn't really get that energy from that space. And so 
I had that experience inside of churches. And then I think my map that I sort of created for myself had a lot to do with spending time in nature and with music and with books and stories. So those spaces really became my personal map, I guess. That's where I sort of grounded a lot of my experience and found meaning and understood myself a lot more in those arenas than I ever did in the, you know, Southern religious culture. So yeah, it's kind of a mix of those two things. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because as I am listening to you speak, I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's something so church culture can be and is predominantly very disembodied, Mm. disconnected. Yeah you know, very kind of like, let's just go ahead and purchase this ticket to leave this place that is, you know, taught to be so evil and so problematic. And especially Mm -hmm. as women, it's like, okay, well, hang on. How do I make sense of my reality without being in this body? Or how do I try to reconcile that, you know, my experience in this body with what I'm being taught? And I remember as a kid having a lot of that dissonance and Mm -hmm. also finding a tremendous amount of spaciousness and freedom in nature and in books and in art as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think it's maybe through that resonance that we begin to realize like, okay, the boxes we're being handed in those maps maybe aren't the real experience of our terrain. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the books and the music that you named were you always musical? Was this did this come later, or was this just like a soul hunger thing that you were just like, I just want to, I, I want to follow the oxygen of moreness. Mm. Yeah, it it must have been. I mean, I guess it's hard to say because my my dad moved us down to Nashville to be a songwriter, so music was always in our home and was always a part of just my atmosphere. But I found my way to it by sitting down at the piano when I was like three and four and just sort of smashing them keys. And so in that way, it felt very much like that was sort of my body leading me towards music, you know, um, and my my expression of it. I really resonate with that experience because I also, as a kid, had that same instinct to sit down. I sat down at my grandparents' piano and just kind of like hit a bunch of notes together. And it's not like I knew what I was doing, but it was just the power of being able to make melody. Oh, yeah. Which is also how I found myself learning how to play the guitar by ear. So there's something about this discovery of agency in being a maker in that recognition that we can create and make something. Yeah, because it does. It just feels good. And I think the piano, especially like being able to feel the resonance of the strings was really exciting. And my parents used to laugh that I'd come home from school and they said they could tell what sort of day I had by how I played the piano because I would just really wail on it if I had something to get out or it would be very like quiet and thoughtful. And so, yeah, I I think it was really important for me to have a way to express through my body when I didn't have a way to like cognitively understand or verbalize what was going on at such a young age. I think that was one of my first experiences of letting my body do the talking And again, in a way I didn't understand at the time, but that's been such a thread through my life that I'm still integrating. It's just allowing the body to speak and not necessarily needing to filter everything through my mind. Yeah, I want to pick up on that thread because there is that dissonance that we spoke of that is so often the case within these kind of religious settings and the body. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that for many of us, that rupture with the old map or the old belief system happened as we began to reclaim and return into our embodied experience. Yeah. Is there a moment that comes to mind when that began to happen for you? And sometimes for folks, it can be gradual. For other people, it's like a full-on rupture tear. But was there a season or time that you remember actually being like, this this isn't, it isn't aligning with my embodied experience? Yeah, I see the beginning of that when I started college. I was a freshman in college and had gone to just a very conservative Christian school and middle school and high school and then landed at UT Knoxville and sort of gave myself permission to, you know, experience other things. So I took a yoga class, I took yoga classes at the rec center and at the same time in the same semester, which was just a coincidence, really, because I think I just took one of the last classes that was available, but I was taking a class on religions in India at the same time. And so I was learning about these other religions, and then I was 
that experience struck me because I think it was the first time that I really felt doing yoga, that I really felt present in my body and grounded in my body and like actually calm and peaceful. Mm. And again, I don't even think I was putting all this together at the time, but just like you're talking about sitting in churches and hearing about, you know, the God of love and all this peace and all these things that are available to you while my body was saying like, I am riddled with shame and guilt and I feel terrible. Just that dissonance between mind and body. I think doing yoga was the first time that my body felt relief that I felt like I was actually experiencing in my body things that I had heard spoken about. That was sort of the beginning of maybe the dominoes kind of falling with me in religion. And then at the end of college, I got married immediately after I graduated. And that one, again, (laughs) this was my big break and it was fully precipitated by my body because my husband was a worship minister at a Church of Christ Church at the time. And so I was like still going to church and being like a wife of a minister. I was still going along with it, even though frustration was building in my mind. And I was just becoming more and more disillusioned and frustrated with the entire thing. But I was still pushing through. But then my body fully just crashed me with like a massive depression and I quit my job and I couldn't get out of bed for, it felt like a month or two. I just, I'd wake up in the morning, go lay on the couch and fall back to sleep. And just, I was like sleeping my life away. I had no energy and was just in such a dark place because what my mind wouldn't allow me to do, my body was kind of um, allowing to happen, which was to let everything that I thought was going to make meaning out of my life and save me, which was religion and marriage and a job and doing all the things you're supposed to do, it just, it all fell apart. And I realized I didn't trust any of it anymore. And I realized that even though people told me there was so much truth in it, I hadn't found truth in it for myself in a way that, because now I see truth as something that does need to resonate in my body. Yeah, man, my body's like led the way the whole time. And I'm now very grateful that I got to that breaking point because then it opened me up to everything that came after so yeah and it's interesting to me because it's like that free fall of unknowing is so terrifying because we have built so much of our identity around the architecture of what the mind can grasp right Mm -hmm. and what the mind can declare in statements of certainty (laughs) and these uh, assertive certitudes of like i am a this and i do this and i believe this and you know here is the structure called danny (laughs) and it's it's incredible that that the moreness calls, that the moreness calls to us and that our bodies uh, refuse to play the game. And so I want to ask you about this free fall of unknowing in terms of, you know, I often say that we have to let go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. And you just named this difficult space of that free fall. When did it begin? When did the something else begin to emerge? And and was this coincided with the beginning of, of Bird Talker? Or was that kind of already happening? Mm. I'm curious about the birth of your own freedom yeah. and creative expression. God, it's funny to look back at it now because I would say the birth of my freedom and creative expression is like emerging currently yeah. in in the most real way in the way that I'm like oh wow this maybe this is what it feels like but back at that time the beginning of it actually was Richard I think um Naked Now was the first book that I ventured to read that was in any way contradictory to you know religious truth um, <laughs> possibly heretical mystical material <laughs> I know like I remember being like telling my parents that I was reading it and being like, oh my God, I'm like reading a weird book, you know? But yeah, it was Richard, which led me to um, Eckhart Tolle. And yeah, I went back to yoga at the time. So I got trained in, as a yoga instructor. So I was reading the Yoga Sutras and Krishnamurti. Yeah, all of those things, again, were like, I remember reading The Naked Now and just feeling like, threads were being untangled in my mind and like relief was happening in 
the orb around my head, which, as he said, like, I felt like I was living and still do like live so much out of just this, my head, the top of my body. And so it was really important for me to have to read books and hear words that could make sense in my mind and help me to like find that relief. And then at the same time, to find it in my body through yoga and movement. So yeah, it it all began there. And that is the same time that Zach and I, my husband and I started to write songs and that's what became Bird Talker. And that's why we named it Bird Talker because Richard's connection to St. Francis and, and Francis's embrace of the body and nature and the earth, mm-hmm. you know, it was all just like such deep medicine for us at the time. So yeah, that was... That was the beginning. Which is also right around the time that you and I first connected because I was working at the Center for Action and Contemplation and I, somebody sent me a video of one, of your song one. And it was like, for me, it was so obviously mystically aligned and I just loved the song so much. Not having any idea that Richard was an ins- Richard Rohr's work was an inspiration for <laughs> for you all. And so yeah. like through like a roundabout crazy connection discovered that not only were you in Nashville, which would have been crazy enough because I know so many folks there, yeah. but that one of my closest friends' husband at the time was managing you, <laughs> which was like, yeah. what are you telling me right now? Universe is crazy. So connected with you yeah. all because um, we wanted to play the song at one of the conferences and Richard just loved the song and then fell in love with you mm. all too. So it was like this crazy sort of orbit of speaking of oneness. (laughs) Yeah, right. That was incredible. (laughs) Totally. But you know, I really, I really resonate with that need, the need to find language, language that gives us permission to unknow what we think we know. I mean, I think it's almost like the gateway into trusting the body is this relaxation of the mind's, uh, you know, almost like colonial need to conquer mystery and declare these Mm -hmm. things as certainties. Um, So those voices who can allow us to descend or uh, embrace paradox or be in the midst of unknowing and to trust it and bless it as good are so important. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things that I'm hearing you say, and I'm curious if this feels right to you, is um, something that I think about a lot in terms of music and the the simultaneity of of harmonizing, Mm -hmm. where it's like you have to listen and sing and move with all at the same time, which is like a unique sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about that capacity as it pertains to life and how we choose to move through life, the courage with which we move through life. Because it's like permission to be in a dance of receptivity, which would be the listening and the rebellion of joining your voice to something. Mm. It's that mix of surrender and self-assuredness that feels to me Mm. like a uniquely embodied and feminine approach. And I wonder if you experience that in what you're describing as these steps into your creative freedom. Were you noticing that dance with both? And did you kind of have to like allow the pendulum to swing into one and the other before you could kind of hold the tension of both of them of I can surrender and I can be self-assured. I can receive and be rebellious at the same time. Was that part of that um, integration for you? Yeah, I guess it feels like learning to trust myself and learning to trust my body. I guess it has been this series of oscillations maybe of falling into a new level of trust and understanding with myself. Part of the stability has become knowing that I will flow out of that again, knowing that whatever sense of stability or whatever I have grasped in a moment where I do find that that sense of grounding, there has to also be, yeah, this understanding that as there's that inflow, there's going to be an outflow and that my life is going to continue to be a series of oscillations where I land somewhere, but then I have to, you know, open my hands eventually and allow that truth or that energy to kind of flow out again and maybe become something else before it flows back in. <laughs> I think I'm I'm hesitating because it's still, this is so present for me. It's like so... Um, it's just such a big part of my relationship to my body and and creativity and all of those things. So that's a different kind of stability and it's hard to put into words. Yeah. And this is something that you and I share. 
that we're both deeply drawn to these cyclical views of creativity and transformation, which to me are a reclamation of the feminine and the feminine beyond gender identification, but as a um, signpost for the embrace of an ecological embodied worldview, right? Yeah. And um, I'm in the same place as you are, Danny. This is so present. So I think it's nice and fun to kind of stumble together through it because it's so like, this is new. (laughs) But I've been brewing on this a lot, the cyclical view, and launched a course this past winter called Womb. And this is the truth. I I created a course for myself. (laughs) Yeah. I basically was like, I really need to descend this winter and I need permission to do so. And I need permission to unknow and to turn off the machinery language of of the industries that make us feel like we need to be constantly productive. Mm-hmm. So I did this course called Womb in the Wintertime, and I'm about to launch one called Woo for springtime on the seduction of the muse and um, sparking that eros energy, wow, yeah. life force energy. Mm-hmm. And my intent is, whether or not I pull this off, but my intent <laughs> is to do one in the summer and one in the fall as well, bloom and wean. Nice. Um, but all this to say that this reclamation of the cycles for me is it's created a new map. One that, I mean, <laughs> at least for me, offers relief from the capitalistic, linear, you know, patriarchal map, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. that map is so ingrained in so many of us, this upward trajectory of growth as success. Yeah. And it creates so much suffering for artists. By the way, on this podcast, I include everyone as artists because I'm like, if you're living, you're creating something with Mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm. But the way that I hear you describing this new oscillation, I like that you use that word, is this spiraling process in which you're comfortable with the seasonality of being sure and then not being sure, that you see it as part of the transformative cycle and that that allows you a new kind of certainty because you're, you're trusting the movement of it the shifting seasons yeah. and the the changing weather patterns, which brings us to another topic I want to dive into with you, the Weather Woman podcast, because I want to mm-hmm. dig into that. But this whole cyclical view, um, when did that begin to manifest in you and become concretized in like actual language? And then share with us the beginning of your journey on the podcast too. Yeah, well... Funnily enough, they they do coincide, the beginning of the podcast and the solidification of all of this language and sort of giving myself permission to embrace this new way very much came into my life because of, of Stevie and our relationship and the Weather Women podcast. We met in just another kismet way where she was making jewelry and selling it at a maker's market and I bought a necklace from her and then found out she was in a band and went and saw her band play later that week and... Yeah, we just, we started to get together and talk about our creative lives. That was really, it was sitting with Stevie in coffee shops and talking about these things that um, I was, for the first time, having those conversations where I was being really honest about, I'm just so, uh, I feel so burnt out right now. Like, I feel like there's nothing to draw from, you know, and... I feel like I have to keep pushing and and then there's these magical moments of creation and like how do I find those and hold on to those and she was asking all the same questions and having her own experience and so she went on this trip to Paris and when she came back that was when she was like okay I've got this idea it's like a map but it's a cycle <laughs> and we just have to move through all Which the isn't phases. That, I'm like, I'm only giggling this. because I'm like, we're women and we're like, hang on, I have this crazy idea. Wait Cycles. a second, I know. <laughs> Picture this. Phases. I know, and, and so cycles. absurd. I feel that way all the time. Now, like when you look at anything in nature and like, quantum physics and all these things, it's like, okay, well, it's right in front of our faces, but just not in a way that I felt allowed to look at or embrace. I don't know. It's just something that we just, we scoot right over it and just assume uh, for me, it's like, there's just no time. That's always what I'm like. There's no time. You got to keep producing. You got to like make that money and take care of yourself and all that. Um, And so, yeah, that's continued to be really a tricky part of my brain to bring in to this new way of being, that idea that constant productivity is the only way that I'm going to be okay. So I still very much have that split and work with that all the time. 
But God, the change in me and my state of being when I give myself permission to move in cycles and when I feel that I need a cycle of rest where I'm not planning the next thing I'm going to write or do or not putting any expectations on my time whatsoever, but just to actually let go, let go of all of my sense of planning and all my sense of the things I'm going to accomplish. Um, when I'm able to do that, I think it's the only way that I've been able to keep going as a creative and just as a, a person trying to live in tune with my inner world and my inner voice, you know, because my body and my spirit don't function well <laughs> when I push them without an awareness of their cyclic nature and, uh, yeah, the need to let go as much as I try to to bring in. And you're right to name that this is, you know, I mean, I was laughing about it a minute ago, right? That it's like, huh, who knew? Cycles and phases. And yet... I think yeah. it's part of this reclamation of embodiment, right? I mean, I don't think I was, I'm trying to think of how old I was, maybe in my mid-30s when I read a book called what The Woman's Code, and it, it like mm. in great detail talks about what's happening in each phase of your cycle. And I was like, holy shit, you mm. mean to tell me there's a better time for me to collaborate and there's a better than other phases and that, you know, this is what's happening during the follicular phase and here's how, and it's not just like understanding hormones, but it's actually understanding relationality. Mm. It's seeing myself as in relationship to and seeing my selfhood as a community of relationships. And mm. this is a new concept for me as well, Danny, just thinking about mm -hmm. a way of being that embraces the me as a we, that includes, you know, the the all of the species of bacteria that are keeping me alive, that mm. includes an awareness of this uh, relationship that I have to the orbiting of our world and the planets and to, you know, plants and all these things. And not in a like cheesy woo way, like, you know, I was reading my astrology report today. I was reading my co-star and, <laughs> but like, you know, in a way. I love my astrology report. You know, it's like, it's being able to look at all these things as information and to stop yeah. devaluing these sources of information that promote interdependence as somehow being lesser than yeah. the realm of rationality. Mm. And I do believe that we are on this journey of reclaiming the mystery of these more feminine ways of knowing. And so yeah. I'm curious about this departure from the machinery of industry for you and particularly with Bird Talker having had such a strong out-of-the-gate success and having so much attention and the ways in which we're sort of trained as musicians to look at these numbers and look at these streams and look at those sold-out shows. And it really is a map of very linear trajectory. Mm -hmm. And how has this impacted your own embrace of the creative cycle for you as a band with Zach, but also just for your own sense of has success been redefined for you? Do you have new definitions of success, I should say? Yeah, I definitely do. I didn't start out with very clear ones, meaning I just, I didn't really know what I wanted when we got into making music and starting this band. Um, and like you said, the success came really quickly. So sort of like snapped me on to this track and this way of thinking about it where it was like, all right, and now we just go up from here. We just keep going up. <laughs> that was always really tricky for me because, yeah, it's like in my 20s and so much of me was falling apart and being put back together while we were doing this thing that I believed in and resonated on so many levels. And then in other ways, my body and life were calling me to do something different, you know, like maybe not try to tour the globe and like be a superstar, you know, like something in my body has always been like, pulling back a little bit at that idea. And so this understanding of, well, learning to listen to my body and actually, you know, honor what it is saying to me has allowed me to envision a career. I'm using quotes because I never, it's such a fluid mm -hmm. <laughs> business and idea, but, um, but yeah, having a, a career that can kind of flow with my own cycles mm. of becoming mm. and my own cycles of creativity where 
yeah, we have seasons. We have seasons where we are creative. We have seasons where we go out and tour. We, then we have seasons where we, you know, we all come home at the holidays and we rest and we don't really think or talk about bird talker. Yeah. And then even specifically right now, I think we're in a, we're in kind of like a, a birth, a rebirth, a death rebirth cycle at the moment because, because of the massive amount of uncertainty about how to move forward and, and how to provide for everybody as we do it. We, especially in the last couple of months, I had to come up against my fear of, you know, the death, the full death of this thing. What if it does not continue? What if this thing goes away? Which was incredibly terrifying. And then once I worked through all of that fear, it just, oh, it gave me this, like, feels like a softer and a wider perspective about the whole thing because I realized how much I'd been measuring it in terms of how much money we're all making if our follower count is growing, if our listenership is growing, yada, yada, the upward tick of all the numbers. And when I really like sat with it, you know, I realized like bird talker, I mean, this sounds very cheesy, but like it wouldn't die even if the band stopped being successful. It could sort of dissolve in some ways, but it would stay alive in others and it would just, it would morph Mm -hmm. into this different thing. And so I don't think I would have been able to hold myself together through all of that if I didn't have some understanding of the cyclical nature of things. I read um, Descent to the Goddess during that time because you posted about it. And so it was like, it was so amazing. It was the perfect companion to that time of like, yeah, like go, go straight into the death and the dissemination of this thing and realize that it's not an ending it would just be a transformation into something else. And yeah, that gives me, again, that sense of security that is like a fluid sense of security. It's not a stable, it's not a stasis type of uh, security. It is like a security in the fluidity of, of nature. Yeah. Yeah. I love this so much because, you know, it reminds me as you're speaking, Danny, of the ways that often a couple will be in, you know, in marriage and they'll reach a certain point in their marriage. And it's this like impasse, this sense of like, you know, things aren't working. The things that used to work aren't working and we're just having a really hard time connecting. And the image that comes to mind is like these gripping like white knuckle fists of like, we have to make mm-hmm. this work. And oftentimes it's when the couple says, maybe this isn't meant to be forever or maybe this won't work that almost relaxes something, some part of that primal panic. And in that relaxation, there is a a fluid uh, spaciousness within which we can redefine what the relationship is and it continues to grow and evolve. I'm reading a book right now called Matter and Desire, an Erotic Ecology by Andreas Weber, Mm -hmm. a philosopher from Germany. And he has this beautiful section about death and our relationship with death as being the only thing that can help us access life. And so the irony being that the more we try to push away the death of something, the less we're actually giving it the opportunity to live and evolve and grow and go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to um, ask you, and this is also just for just for the sake of naming what is true about this bizarre, like, life altering two-year experience that we've been through with the pandemic, but in particular, the import and impact of that for musicians has been so real Mm -hmm. that so much of how musicians make their money is through touring. And, you know, the reality of what is it that we make on streams, Danny, is like 0.0031 dollars a stream i mean it's (laughs) it's like i lose count of all the zeros i I gave you so many zeros um (laughs) i did the math at one point it was like it would require like this many thousands of streams for me to make three dollars like it was like (laughs) and then i was like doing the math and being like in order to just recoup the costs of making one single, it was like, I would need two billion streams. <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah. What is this? Yeah, that's heartbreaking stuff. It is. But at the same time, and I guess on that thread of dying, dying to what has been in order to make room for what could be, mm-hmm. do you see a collective shift? Is there a collective remembering that, you know, it's easy for us to be nostalgic and look backward and be like, oh, we used to make so much money as musicians and now look at this shit. But you are also naming the fact that that industry was really dehumanizing. I mean, put us on the road nonstop. 
um, expected us to operate as machines. So I guess I'm curious, like what what potential hybridization are you seeing in this weird space, uh, especially right now that it seems like we're we're beginning to talk more and more of a post-pandemic reality? I do feel like there is a shift. I can't really name what it is outside of of myself and just my experience with my band. But yeah, I mean, we partnered with a record label to put out our last record last year, you know, because we needed funds to do it. And even that is a part of that hybridization um, that you're talking about, where it was a shorter contract and it was just for one record that we had already made and so it wasn't like those, you know, horrible deals that you hear about where you have to make, you know, three records and they own everything forever. And yeah, I'm very curious about what the next the next phase, the next step for what's possible for creatives is. And I feel like things like Patreon, things like mm-hmm. it just feels like more of these direct relationships with um, the consumers and the artists are becoming more important. For us, financially, we still need greater support outside of things like that. And so, yeah, I don't I don't really have a, a vision for the future for what that is. But I do feel like creatives are longing for that. And even as consumers, I feel like I'm longing for just like the art coming through less filters mm-hmm. and less like being advertised to me as a product and... Uh, you know, less of the industry of the thing and more of just an organic receiving of of whatever it is that someone decided to make, you know. So just more of a democratization of that process, more people to people is um, what I feel hungry for and, and just excited to see how that can expand. Yeah. And you're right to name that as like a, it is a total unknowing of how we think about creative industry, you know. Or the industries that we used to associate with, like the music industry, for instance, and sort of embracing this weird time as an opportunity to experiment, but also to to shift how we think about creativity within the framework of it being collective, because it is, and communal, because it is. It's like, we've always known yeah. that you can't make a record solo. Like, there's so many people and players involved, but it feels like a... A new space to open up in a way to the public, to the fan, to the consumer to say, okay, we're in this together. Like you're making this record with me by your support. And I don't know, there's something yeah. um, dignifying about that too. That's like, it, it It feels like it's part of this collective shift out of the I and into the we. Mm-hmm. Which I really love and has always been the most satisfying part of being a creative, you know? Well, doubly so. You know, you have, yeah, the creative moments you have with yourself. And then when you share that with other people and feel that resonance, it's like that's the that's the driving force behind the desire to do all of it for me, you know. Well, I want to ask you about that desire because as we've been describing the cyclical nature, it's like we know that to put everything in the bucket of desire is like, you know, <laughs> you're not always going to feel like playing the guitar. You're not always going to feel like painting, like I understand. But yeah. I have found that instead of placing my expectation in, in the bucket of desire, like do I feel like doing this thing today, if I reframe it around courage, like what is going to activate mm-hmm. my courage today, mm. then it gives me permission to to see that if I sit down to read this great book I'm reading right now, for instance, to see that that is going to inform my work either on the show or it's going to inform how I play music. And that if I'm working on music, I'm doing the dishes. If I'm doing the dishes, I'm loving my kids. And this kind of web-like perspective or frame that can then allow me to move from one thing to the next without that pressure of like, were you productive today? (laughs) So I want to ask you about what activates your courage these days or what are the ingredients that are activating your courage? Mm, Yeah, I love that frame, making it about courage rather than desire. Um, And I also add to that, I've reframed the idea of discipline as devotion. So something that's motivated by by a deep desire and by a love in that still shows up when it doesn't feel good or exciting or enticing. The pieces of my web, I guess, 
it continues to blow my mind how almost everything is a part of the web of me. And, you know, my creativity is my sexuality, is my spirituality, is my relationship. And so, yeah, it's a very simple answer and too big of an answer because it encompasses everything. But, you know, the way that I, the way that I wake up in the morning and can choose to breathe and move and get into my body directly affects, I think, how my creativity is going to feel that day, you know, and the things I choose to eat and then the things I choose to read in the morning and put into my mind. Yeah, my relationship to my inner world, how curious I'm being about what's going on inside can allow the creative process to flow more easily because I'm not, you know, getting hung up on surprises left and right. Yeah, my creative process is typically collaborative, typically with my husband too. So like our relationship and how we are relating to each other plays into my creative process. And, you know, I'm creative with friends. So same thing. It's like, it really is, it's all connected and a strain on any part of that web, I end up feeling it somewhere else. And so, yeah, a lot of this growth for me has been about allowing that to be true and allowing the web to not be, I think I used to feel caught by that. I wanted space. Something that I did didn't affect somebody else. It didn't affect everybody else. I used to resent the web. But I think the more that I've been able to just heal my relationship with myself and understand that I have to start there first and make sure that I am getting what I need and what makes me feel most fulfilled and ready to show up in all these other ways, then I can more easily, you know, be in those spaces and embrace that it is all connected. It all feeds into each other. And and then now that gives me such a sense of stability, again, fluid stability, mm -hmm. but a great sense of stability that everything in my life is is working together. And it's that pattern, seeing that pattern play out over time is where I can find a sense of grounding and stability. It's so beautiful, Danny. It brings me a lot of comfort even as I listen to you because it's what you're saying is that we can trust that when something is being revealed in one aspect of the web, that our courage to go into these places and spaces and soften whatever is gripping up inside of us about whatever is happening, embrace the death, quote unquote, embrace the death of whatever is no mm -hmm. more is the embrace of making space for what could be, that when we do that in one element of that web, we're really doing it for the whole. And mm -hmm. I, that activates my courage in, in a deeper way because it's, it's easier for me to do something or be courageous about something if I feel like it's for other people. <laughs> like if I think it's for mm. my kids or if I think it's about my friends, like I'm there, right? Yeah. So that element of, of web-likeness helps me feel more courageous about these spaces that are difficult and dark. Yeah. So to close, Danny, I want to ask you, what shape is unknowing taking in your life right now? Where are you having to practice unknowing? What's calling you to the edge of your own map? in this moment it's almost like what's not <laughs> calling me to the edges of unknowing right <laughs> again my answer is all of it circle that's a fair answer <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i mean i guess yeah the uncertainty of my career and just to look ahead and see you know the haze the mists ahead of us is calling me into the practice of living with that unknowing every day. And God, it's so cool because it asks me to, like, what steps do I take when nothing is guaranteed, when I have no idea what's going to happen and I cannot predict anything? Then what do I do? And I heard Terrence McKenna say this in a YouTube video recently. He was talking about ethics, I guess, and that there's this fallacy that you do A in order to achieve B. But he says it's it's just a fallacy. You do A because A has to be done and you can't know anything about the results. And so living in the unknowing of not being able to know anything about the results, always. which is always true, right? And it's mostly like we've just been bombarded with that truth <laughs> in a way that we can't ignore. 
but it's always true. And then it just puts me right back in my body and right back in the present moment and asks me, well, then what is it that should be done? What is asking to be done now in my body? What can I trust myself to do? And it really is just uncover what there is to uncover, express what there is to express, try to find my version of truth, try to find something beautiful worth holding on to, worth sharing. Yeah, like trust, I guess, although I don't know what it's trust in beyond the pattern of my life, the relationships in my life, the fact that all these things continue to weave together and make some sort of coherent sense, even when I can't see it. When I turn around and look back at the way things have worked out in my life, it's just like, oh, so I won't see it now. I can't see it now, but all I can do is do what, you know, this moment is asking and trust in this pattern, trust in this cycle. And it is not easy, but I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it all the time. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that invitation to trust. And what a beautiful reframe, by the way. Thank you for that. Because the, yeah, A is just A. Like, let's just let A be A. Like, we don't yeah. know what the B is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> So at that A point, um, what I find has become my practice in this very, very real unknowing that I am also in is this, this place of like trusting that what I engender in my body, I will radiate and will come back. That in this reciprocal mm. flow, that if I engender a certain posture within my body, that I am radiating an energy into the world. And so that becomes my practice, right, of trust, like you said, when I was describing it to a friend, I was just at South by Southwest last week, which is such a riot of chaos and comparison. Um, and I was with a musician friend and I said, yeah. here's how it feels. Because she was like, well, what are you like? How are you doing this? And I'm like, OK, well, in non-religious or spiritual language, it feels like this. It feels like I soften my belly, which gives me permission to breathe a little bit more deeply mm. I laugh at myself. I giggle. Mm -hmm. I just like, I have to like, let it like let out a huff of a laugh because this is funny. It's funny to not know. And it's funny to watch yourself not know and freak the fuck out. Right. <laughs> so I soften my belly. I giggle. Yeah. And I just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, okay, you know, and somewhere in that three step physical surrender, then I'm able to do these little mm -hmm. loving things like I'm going to feed myself good food today. I'm going to make it to my yoga class because that's my medicine. And I'm going to pick up some creative tool, yeah. whether it's the guitar or a paintbrush or my computer to write. And then there's spaciousness around what the outcome is. And mm -hmm. I really feel that in yeah. what you've offered us today. I certainly see you as this weather woman, you know, this wild musical mystic. Uh, from afar, I feel strength and gather strength oh, wow. from your your fluid stability, from this place of embrace of the body and the cyclical nature of creativity. And I'm honored to know you, but I'm just so grateful for the time that mm -hmm. you took today so that I can share that knowing and the richness of who you are with those who listen to the show. Absolutely. It was an honor for me to be here and talk with you. You are the podcasting queen. So <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, thanks, Danny. Yeah, it was such a joy. Thank you for having me. So we're learning how to do away with the dependency of external maps and trust that inner compass in our bodies as we learn to navigate uncertainty, here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. Let your body do the talking. It's funny how simple this insight is and yet how profound, because most of us ignore our body's telltale signs. You know, we say things like, ah, it seemed right in my head, but my gut said. But beyond just using these phrases, if we were to actually really pay attention to the body, to pick up on these cues, to see the body as communicating a complex and complete intelligence all the time. The thing is, is that in order for us to pick up on those cues, we have to drop down out of our heads. We have to learn how to be a little bit more present. We have to learn how to be here, be here fully here in the fully embodied sensory now. 
Second piece of True North wisdom. I really appreciated Danny's emphasis on cycles and seasons. I mean, obviously, I'm clearly into that myself these days. But it just helps me so much as an artist, as a creative, as a human being to not think of my life in terms of an upward trajectory or even a line with eventful vertical lines that intersect it. When I think of my life in terms of seasonality, in terms of cycles and spirals, it gives me so much more permission to embrace however and wherever I am and then soften into whatever the invitation of that season is. In that way, I feel like I, I can move with the flow of the invitation of that season instead of being in resistance, which I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I have been known to struggle with resistance from time to time. <laughs> Last piece of True North wisdom. I just really enjoyed the discussion around the web-like nature of reality. The idea that it's all connected. So, if on a particular day you pick up one set of tools or feel inspired to go receive inspiration instead of produce it, to see that whether you are in the ebb or the flow of your creative process, you are feeding and being fed in that great reciprocal web that we're part of. And I also like that Danny said that there was a time when she felt trapped by that, that she felt like she needed to be separate from it. But the reality is when we relax into the web, we can experience ourselves as being held. <laughs> it's kind of nice to know that you're not in this alone and that this great reciprocal creative experience is communal. Every part of your life is part of that web. So you don't have to think about productivity the same way anymore. You can see it as all weaving the web. And remember, however you show up to one aspect of that web is how you show up to all of it. So. Maybe this is an invitation for all of us to drop into our bodies, be a little bit more present, a little bit more relaxed, <laughs> have a sense of humor about our drama, and show up with love and intention with whatever it is that you have in front of you today. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying these conversations on Unknowing, I am going to invite you to join my web, become part of the community, the reciprocal community that's making this show possible. You can do it in two different ways. One is to become a patron. There are many different tiers of membership and lots of fun benefits. You can check that out in the show notes, or you can give a donation in any amount directly to Unknowing. There's also a link for that in the show notes. This show is made possible only by the generosity of my patron supporters. So I'm inviting you to join me in this creative collaboration. <laughs> it's not easy for me to ask, by the way. I don't like asking, but I'm working on it. This is a muscle in my own web that I'm working on. So there you go. And finally, you know that I like to end with a quote. This season's quote is Rebecca Solnit. Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go. <laughs> <laughs>